tell you that. But uh, don't get used to it. Okay. We were out there a second ago. We're going to have that happen again today. Before I get started, maybe we'll just switch it from this all together. No dice, huh? Okay. All right. Okay, there it is. Should I should should I chance it, Jerry? Or it's hit and miss. It's like gambling, right? I'll tell you what, I'm not much of a gambler, and so this won't be too much of a distraction. Let's just use this mic, okay? All right. With that wonderful introduction, can I have the, there we go, okay. I wanted to, wanted to tell you, don't get used to the uh, cool weather. <laughs> it is just the end of June, and we are in Tulsa, Oklahoma, so... As much as I would like to get used to it, and it's not going to be that way for very long. By the end of the week, it'll be back in the mid to upper 90s. So, so I want to start with reading a passage of scripture that we're going to focus on this week, and actually in two weeks. <clears throat> this is part one of a two-part message. First Corinthians 16, verses 13 and 14 says, "Be watchful, stand firm in the faith, act like men, be strong. Let all that you do be done in love." Pray with me. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your word, which gives us all that we need for life and godliness. And Lord, we trust that as we examine your word today and the, the cultural problems, Lord, in light of what your word has to say, we pray that you would speak to us, that your Holy Spirit would illuminate your word for us, and we'd be able to apply it to our hearts and our lives in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> I want to know how many of you are tired of reading, watching, or hearing the news. <clears throat> I think most of us are, at least sometimes. And I'm not just thinking about seeing the suffering in Afghanistan or Ukraine or Uvalde, Texas, or even Tulsa, Oklahoma. We can get compassion fatigue with those kinds of things sometimes, can't we? We do care. I think all of us care. But we have a limited capacity for our caring. After a while, the emotion sometimes just overwhelms us, and we kind of have to set it aside, at least for a little while. <clears throat> Excuse me. But this morning, I'm thinking more about the incredibly divisive issues in our culture that are in the news or in the commentary in one form or another almost every single day. The things that seem to, we want to try another one? Okay. If I can find the other end of this thing, there we go. All right. I'll step back from this and turn this on. Can you hear me now? Okay, let's see if you can keep hearing me and we'll just kind of stick with that. So we, we kind of have to isolate these things because sometimes they work and sometimes they don't. But if this one works now, we'll stick with it as long as we can. Where was I? Okay. Some of these things threaten the core beliefs of our faith. And I'm thinking primarily of two significant moral issues, which have become contentious political issues over the last 50 years. I'm thinking of our confused and broken culture on issues of sexuality and gender. And I'm thinking of our culture's view of the value of life and the battle over abortion. There are certainly other things that we could mention, 
but the ideas, the division, and the rancorous debate surrounding these two issues generate so much talk, so much news, so much debate and division that sometimes I just have to separate myself from what I'm reading in the news or on TV or listening to radio or online. I have to just stop reading this take and that opinion about these things for a little bit, even those things that I agree with, even though I've always been a very avid newsreader. I was a weird kid. I was reading a newspaper when I was 10. Some of you say, well, you're still pretty weird, Bill. <laughs> but why? Why do we have to sometimes separate ourselves from this? And I think it's frankly not only disturbing, it's depressing. And it can lead to despair. And I don't believe God ever wants us to come to rest in despair. Because he knows our frame. He knows our limits. Now lament may be appropriate. <clears throat> we see a lament in the Psalms, don't we? And of course we see it in the biblical book that's almost completely comprised of lament. Lamentations, hence the name of the book. We see lament but not outright despair. Because in Christ there is always <clears throat> Even in Lamentations, after a long list of laments, we read in chapter 3, verses 19 through 24, I remember my affliction and my wandering, the bitterness and the gall. I well remember them, and my soul is downcast within me. Yet this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. What a great passage to remember. This I call to mind, and because of that, I can have hope. Because of the Lord's great love, we are not consumed, for his compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord, I will say to myself, the Lord is my portion, therefore I will wait for him. So, of course, it's true that things don't always turn out the way we want them, especially in this life. That may or may not be the case. Pro-lifers, for example, hoped and prayed for 50 years that the Supreme Court would do what they did on Friday and overturn Roe v. Wade. <clears throat> but you know what? If that hadn't been overturned last Friday, God's still in control. So we're talking primarily about hope in Him, in His righteousness, in His justice, in His ultimate redemption. And seeing, reading about, and hearing these disturbing things every day in this current cultural moment causes me to pray. And I think that's a good thing. Anything that drives you to your knees, at least figuratively in prayer, is a good thing. But my prayer, after reading and seeing some of these things related to these issues, is always something very basic, very simple. It's along these lines. God have mercy. God deliver us. God help us. Those are prayers. They're short prayers, but they're prayers. I think the Apostle Paul witnessed so many things in the days of the early church that were very similar to what we are experiencing as aliens and strangers in our own culture and becoming more alien and more strange by the day. As believers in Christ, we are the redeemed. We are his children, and the things we think as our minds are renewed by the word of God change the way we live it changes the way we say things and the things we say. It changes the way we think and face the problems in this world. And I think that's one reason that the Apostle Paul gives us these five foundations 
for really any season of human history that we read in the passage from 1 Corinthians a moment ago. Be watchful, stand firm, be courageous. That's what act like men means, so women, you're not off the hook. Be strong and do everything in love. And let's face it, in this particular season of human history, if we are to stand firm in the truth of Scripture, we are nothing less than strange. We are weird. We're out of place. And to the world's way of thinking, we're out of touch or we're on the wrong side of history. If we stand firm in the truth, it could cost us. In fact, it's already costing believers, and of course that has been true since the early church martyrs. Our brothers and sisters in Christ in those countries where Christians are truly persecuted today, like in North Korea we highlighted a moment ago, they can lose their freedom by being thrown in prison. Some of them can literally lose their lives only because they're followers of Christ. So let's be real and admit that we're not there here in America at this point. But believers in Christ who stand firm in the truth are already losing their livelihood, or at least in some places at some times they're having it threatened. You remember the lawsuits against the baker for refusing to do a wedding cake for a gay wedding? Or the flower shop that wouldn't do flowers for a gay wedding? Now both of these refusals were due to standing firm in Christian conviction. So even in America, people are already having to go to court to defend their right to speak the truth of Scripture and to live by it. Colorado seems especially hostile to Christians standing firm in the truth because there's a case similar to the baker that they took to court that's now pending before the Supreme Court, where this time the state is compelling a Christian web designer who designs sites for weddings to do so for gay weddings. And this person's refused. Now it's gone all the way to the Supreme Court. It's happening overseas, too. Some of you have heard the story of Pavi Rasanan. She's a Lutheran woman, not Vasanan, Rasanan. She's a Finnish member of parliament, and she's an indicted hate criminal. She was indicted for criminal agitation against a minority group, and that carries a sentence or a fine or imprisonment and a maximum of two years. She was accused of hate speech for stating on social media that the established church, the Evangelical Lutheran Church of Finland, should not have sponsored a gay pride parade. And she had also written a tract in 2004 explaining the biblical doctrine of marriage, including that it's between one man and one woman and not between two men. For that, she was indicted. Something that as little as 14 years ago even Barack Obama said he believed that marriage was between one man and one woman. <clears throat> now, in this case, she was acquitted of the charges of hate speech in court, but prosecutors are still pursuing the case, so it's not entirely over. In a unanimous ruling, the court concluded that it is not for the district court to interpret biblical concepts. Okay, so there's hope there. The Bible tells us in Ecclesiastes that there's nothing new under the sun. Ecclesiastes chapter 1 verse 9 says, What has been will be again. What has been done will be done again. There is nothing new under the sun. This should not surprise us, my brothers and sisters. And sometimes we feel surprised, don't we? Can't believe the things that are happening. On the one hand, this wisdom from Solomon, son of King David, should be very encouraging to us. Because think about it this way. If there's nothing new under the sun, and if God is sovereign over all of human history then we can fully hope in him. 
Our hope, our trust can be in him. We can encourage ourselves with the proverb that all of you know, trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding and in all your ways acknowledge him and he will make straight your paths. So when Paul writes stand firm as one of these five foundations for this cultural moment, we can have this hope in mind. We can stand firm in this hope. Now think of the visual images of standing firm. This guy is in a hurricane. I've always found it kind of humorous watching these weather guys out there trying to do their weather reports, trying to stand up in a hurricane, huh? He starts out by stumbling when the wind first hits him. He pushes against the wind and finally does what he sets out to do. He sort of stands firm right there at least relatively so, in the face of a hurricane-force wind that seeks to knock him on his fanny. He gets beaten up by the wind, but he doesn't get knocked down. He gets his footing. Reminds me of what we face in our culture. Think of that visual image. It reminds me of what we face in our culture. We are trying to stand firm in the midst of a hurricane of cultural change. But we must remember what Paul told the church in his second letter to the church at Corinth. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. We are hard-pressed on every side, but not crushed. We sang that this morning, didn't we, Jason? Perplexed, but not in despair. Persecuted, but not abandoned. Struck down, but not destroyed. Perplexed, but not in despair. Struck down, but not destroyed. Hard-pressed on every side, but not crushed. Why? Why can Paul write this? Because the power to stand firm is not from us. We can't do it. It's from God, and it's from him alone. We often think, and rightly so, about this particular verse from 2 Corinthians when we think about our personal, physical, or emotional suffering. But how about we also apply this to our place in culture as we seek to do what Paul admonished us to do here, to stand firm. It's easy to despair with the consistent, all-of-the-time drumbeat about these issues. You don't, you, you don't even have to go looking for news. You can see it on billboards when you're driving to church. You see it everywhere. You see it in the store. This month, June has been Pride Month. Yesterday in Tulsa, Oklahoma, there was a pride parade celebrating with pride the identity of LGBTQ++ persons. Today there is a Pride in the Park event at Guthrie Green. We don't even have to remind ourselves of what the Bible has to say about pride in general. The Bible clearly outlines that pride is a sin. In fact, we can make a case that it's the original sin. I can be like God meaning I can decide for myself anything about my life, do anything I want, and I don't have to submit to the maker of the universe who set the standards for our lives to not just sustain our lives, but to help us thrive. The Ten Commandments, along with all the other ways God spells out with clarity in Scripture about how we are to live and how we are not to live as his children, they aren't given to us because God's a curmudgeon, a grumpy old man, and wants to keep us from having a good time. That's not what these things are in Scripture for. They're for our protection. They're for our well-being. They're for our 
good. So think about this. When you try to make pride a good thing, despite what Scripture says about it, it's rebellion against God, and then you layer on top of that pride, which you're making a good thing, a celebration of what the Bible clearly labels sin, it's the kind of thing that makes me want to step back from this celebration, lest the Lord open up the earth and swallow me along with those who are celebrating pride. We're living in Romans chapter 1, verses 18 through 32. I'm not going to read the whole passage. I'm just going to read the last verse of this passage. You can look up the remainder if you want to see more context. But the last verse of this passage, Romans 1.32, says, Although they know God's righteous decree that those who do such things deserve death, they not only continue to do these very things, but also approve of those who practice them. That's where we are. We're at the end of a whole month of our entire culture, from local and national businesses to celebrities to media to politicians and even the federal government, approving and celebrating those who practice those things that the Scripture says deserve death. In this environment, i got to tell you, I feel myself feeling like Frodo in Lord of the Rings. You know the story of Lord of the Rings. Frodo has possession of the Ring of Power, right? And he's on a mission to take it to Mount Doom to destroy it. It must be destroyed because the power of the ring has caused war and death and destruction. And unless it's destroyed, there can be no peace in Middle Earth. But just like we lament, Frodo laments. We're going to look at a short clip here. The dialogue can be a little hard to decipher, so I've helped you out. I've captioned it for you. I wish the ring had never come to me. I wish none of this had happened. So do all who live to see such times, but that is not for them to decide. All we have to decide is what to do with the time that is given to us. There are other forces at work in this world, Frodo, besides the will of evil. Bilbo was meant to define the ring. In which case, you also were meant to have it. And that is an encouraging thought. So do you feel like Frodo sometimes? I wish, I, I wish we weren't living in this time. I wish we weren't seeing the things we were seeing. I'm like Frodo. I get worn out with all the fighting, all the harsh words. I get tired of how this cultural moment impacts families and friends and neighbors and causes disputes and causes broken relationships. I sometimes naively wish we could go back to simpler times, even knowing that sin has always been at work in this world. I wish it need not have happened in my time, said Frodo. At least that's what he said in the book. But Gandalf, the wise wizard, tells Frodo, so do I and so do all who live to see such times, but that's not for them to decide. All we have to decide is what to do with the time that is given us. That's a good word. And then he says, there are other forces at work in this world, Frodo, besides the will of evil. Bilbo was meant to find the ring, in which case you were also meant to have it, and that is an encouraging thought. No one likes to deal with these things. They're not pleasant, they're not fun. And we've even noted that it can be depressing, and that can lead us into despair. But as Gandalf says, all we can decide is what we can do with the time that is given us. 
Paul wrote this to the Ephesians. Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. And then Gandalf reminds Frodo that there are other forces at work in this world. This I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. Another wise person named Solomon wrote, he apparently didn't wear a wizard hat. Because of the Lord's mercies we are not consumed, great is his faithfulness. And finally, Gandalf tells Frodo that he was meant to have the ring, and that this was an encouraging thought. Have you thought about Esther? You remember Esther in chapter 4, where Mordecai told them to reply this way to Esther, Do not imagine that you in the king's palace can escape any more than all the Jews. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance will arise for the Jews from another place, and you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have attained royalty for such a time as this. For such a time as this. Frodo was meant to have the ring, and that encouraged Gandalf, because perhaps Frodo was born for this. Clearly, since God is sovereign, he has chosen you and he has chosen me to live in this time, in this physical place, Tulsa, Oklahoma, 2022, as well as this place in human and salvation history. It's no accident that you are living here now. God has a plan and a purpose for all of us who follow Christ. I think this is kind of an example of why Lord of the Rings is one of the best Christian stories. Never uses the name of Christ, never uses the name of God, but of course the book of Esther didn't either. There's so much biblical truth embedded in all the dwarves and the hobbits and the wizards and orcs and the kings of the story if you have an ear to hear. And a little bit of a sidebar here. You know how sometimes grandkids will have cute nicknames for their grandparents rather than just grandma or grandpa, right? For example, Jim Grinnell's grandkids call him Paca, right? Okay. Well, my grandson Arlo calls me Grandolph. So I guess I'm Grandolph the Gray now. I'll be I'll be Grandolph the White before long. <laughs> but before we can stand firm, Paul tells us in our opening text that we read, we must be on guard. We must be watchful. We must be on the alert the different Bible translations say. So we know what to stand against and to stand for. If we're not alert, if we're not watchful, if we don't know what's going on, we don't know what we need to stand firm for and against. This means we cannot, as much as I have to admit I'd like to sometimes, hide our heads in the sand and pretend that none of this is happening, just hoping that it'll, okay, maybe if I, la, 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 I don't have to hear it, I'm going to let it all pass me by. We can't do it. I mentioned earlier I have to be very careful how much news and information I consume on these key issues that we've noted because it can lead me into depression and despair. But I must not completely avoid it. To do so would be ignoring Paul's command here to be watchful. We have to see and know and acknowledge what's happening in our culture. We can't simply think that, well, this is happening on the coasts, or it's happening in Europe and not in Oklahoma. For example, this was billed as a family-friendly event 
this is what will take place this afternoon, this video from last year. I show you this to do what the Lord commanded through the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 16. Be on guard. Be watchful. Be on the alert. You have men in drag dancing with kids there, throwing frisbees around. Another way to think about this is to know what's going on and what it means in the light of the Word of God. When you're alert and watchful, you do have a sense of what's going on. We have to live in this world, my brothers and sisters. We cannot escape this new reality. We have to at least have a sense of what's happening. We must rely on the Lord for discernment. And we must rely on the Lord for how best to respond to these things. We're going to discuss that a little bit more today, but in part two of the message in two weeks as well. There are many things that we must be on guard against. Spiritual enemies that might not just cause us to be disturbed from outside the church, but we have to be guarding against pride and sin and false doctrine ourselves. We must always, we must always, in the Greek it means always, we must always look at our own hearts first and not simply lament on all the problems out there. We have to look at our own hearts first. Matthew Henry wrote that a Christian is always in danger and therefore should ever be on the watch but the danger is greater at some times and under some circumstances. The Corinthians were in manifest danger upon many accounts. Their feuds ran high. The irregularities among them were very great. There were deceivers got among them who endeavored to corrupt their faith in the most important articles, those without which the practice of virtue and piety could never subsist. One Bible dictionary explains the phrase, be on guard, like this, to watch to refrain from sleep. It was transferred in meaning from the physical to the moral religious sphere. You see some scriptural references there. It denotes attention to God's revelation or to the knowledge of salvation, a mindfulness of threatening dangers, which with conscious earnestness and an alert mind keeps it from all drowsiness and all slackening in the energy of faith and conduct. Slackening of energy. Anybody get that? especially when it's related to this kind of stuff, right? So in a very real sense, even apart from this current cultural moment, we are admonished to always be on guard in a spiritual sense. We can't be asleep. We can't be asleep. We must stay alert to the things that threaten our faith or our walk with Christ. One of the things I think we need to notice about what's happening in our culture is how religious, I used, uh, you, you saw my air quotes there, how religious is the LGBTQ movement and the pro-abortion movement. Pride Month is celebrated with all the fervor of high holy days. The pro-aborts believe that the so-called right to abortion is a sacred right. That's a religious kind of thing, right? Everybody worships, even atheists. And polytheists in ancient Athens worshiped. We read about Paul in Athens in Acts chapter 17. It says he was provoked. It says his spirit was greatly troubled and he was greatly distressed because he saw that the city was full of idols. Just like you and I are disturbed when we watch a pride parade or when we watch um, an abortion supporter protesting outside a Supreme Court justice. 
celebrating the idolatry of self that's inherent in these movements. In verse 22 and 23 of Acts chapter 17, we read, Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. So Paul recognized that even though they were worshiping idols, they were very religious. The good news of the gospel may not have been what these religious people in Athens thought they needed to hear. But Paul discerned that it's not only what they needed, but they innately wanted to hear it. He knew their hearts were restless, so he preached rest. He preached the gospel of peace, the gospel of rest. While it's true that the traditional institutions and forms of religion do not have the same influence they once did, it's likewise true that contemporary culture in the West is inarguably, even aggressively, religious. You can take a person out of church, but you can't take church out of a person. If God is dead, that's not the end of the story. You have to name a successor. A post-Christian society is not the same as a post-religious society. The religious flavor of our political and ethical discourse is overwhelming. Everybody worships because you got to serve somebody, as Bob Dylan once sang. Whether this American altar is dedicated to the God of partisanship, the God of therapeutic self-help, the God of intersectionality, or merely the almighty dollar, the point is the same. I think that's very true. This writer, Samuel Jaynes, says that the reality that everybody worships, the realization that our culture isn't Christian but is still religious, should make us bold in our public witness and in our interactions with those in our relational circles. He suggests that we should be bold enough to speak in moral language because though people may think of themselves as relativists and non-religious, they don't behave that way when they're talking about elections or racism or abortion or LGBTQ issues on Facebook or Instagram or in pride parades or, again, while demonstrating in front of a Supreme Court justice's home. Another writer says this, every corner of modern society seems to be crying out for a God who can and will make all things right, including heaping justice on the heads of the wicked. Think of this. Think of this idea. Why are superhero movies so popular in our culture? Yes, they can be very entertaining. They can be visual feasts of action and drama and even humor. But movies with these kinds of things that don't also have a spiritual core generally don't draw the kinds of attention and popularity that some superhero movies do. Superhero movies are popular because everybody knows innately whether they've ever consciously thought of it this way or not, that something's gone wrong with the world. Everybody knows that. And because everybody knows that, everybody is hungering for a way to make things right again. We want to see good triumph. We want to see evil defeated. And you know what? Giving them the benefit of the doubt here for a moment, I think that's also at the heart of the LGBTQ movement and the abortion supporters, and even some of the more misguided elements of the racial justice movement. So though it's clear to those of us who are in Christ 
that these people in movements are looking for love, they're looking for relationships, they're looking to set the world right in all the wrong places and all the wrong ways, I still believe that their pursuit is very religious. Much of our culture knows Thanos. And if you've seen the Avengers movies, you know that he's the bad guy. He's the very evil character in the Avengers movies. He causes the death of half the population of the universe. He's an evil Hitler on steroids. But not many know that Thanos is the shortening of the name of the Greek personification of death, Thanatos. Anybody know that? Some of you knew that. You're really sharp. Do you think that's an accident? I don't think it's an accident. We all want to see the world set right. We all want to see death defeated. C.S. Lewis famously called the gospel story the true myth. All myth is an attempt to shine light on truth. True myth is the ultimate light shining on the ultimate truth. Lewis wrote, now the story of Christ is simply a true myth. A myth working on us in the same way as the others, but with this tremendous difference that it really happened. So how might accepting the thought that everybody worships change the way that we should relate to our friends, our neighbors, and even family? Following Paul's example from Acts 17, that might mean saying to someone something like what he said. Okay, maybe not in these words, maybe in different words, but you'll get the idea. I perceive that in every way you want justice. The God of heaven and earth is a God of perfect justice, and he has appointed Jesus Christ to judge the world. Find forgiveness and a sure hope of a righteous eternity by coming to him in faith. We started by noting how tiring, exhausting all of this stuff is. We also saw how Paul told us to stand firm, to be on guard. And in two weeks we're going to unpack more of this in 1 Corinthians chapter 16 along with the other things that Paul gave us in this passage in light of this current cultural moment. But I want to finish here for today, and I want to leave us with these thoughts. We live in a truly post-Christian culture. But when we look out and see this culture, let's not see an enemy. It's easy for us to look out and see the other side, whoever that might be, as enemies. Let's not see an insurmountable fortress either, like well, there's no way that we can beat this. Let's not only see rebellion and sin and God's coming judgment, even though all these things are in play here. Jesus told us he came to seek and to save the lost. And the Lord chooses to use us as his witnesses. So when we leave here this morning, let's remember Mordecai's message to Esther. Let's remember Gandalf's message to Frodo. Let's remember Lamentations and Paul and Solomon. We were born into this time in history for a reason, God's reasons. Let's see at least in part what may be actually happening. Worship is what's happening. Got to serve somebody. And the post-Christian world has chosen the idol of self to worship. Worship is happening in the world as hard as this might be for us to see in the day-to-day -day discourse of our culture. The world is hungry for the transcendent truth that only the gospel of Jesus Christ can bring.
They're waiting for someone to explain how they already live. They need the church, they need us, to say what Paul has said to the man of Athens, what you worship as unknown or unreachable, this we proclaim to you. Heavenly Father, help us, Father, as we engage our culture, as we live in this moment of human history that we believe you ordained us to live in. We ask for your grace. We know, Father, that we cannot stand firm without the grace of God. We cannot stand firm in the truth. We can't know the truth except apart from what your word tells us is true. So, Father God, we pray that we would be so invested, so immersed in the word of God that we are able to stand firm by your grace, by the power of your Holy Spirit at work in us. We pray, Heavenly Father, that we would do all things in love, even as we'll look at more fully in the next message a couple weeks from now. And Father, we do pray that we would always be on guard as well. On guard first for our own hearts and then for the things that can impact our hearts that we see in our day-to-day culture. Father, we thank you, Lord, that you are a faithful God, that your mercies are new every morning, and great is your faithfulness. Amen.